Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we come before you this evening pleading the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our cleansing and our sanctifying means of coming before you to worship you in all of our impurities and impediments. Oh God, look over our iniquities. Forgive us and grant to us the blessing of the effectual power of your word this evening. And may God, in Christ Jesus, be glorified. Amen. So the book of the prophet Micah uh, can be broken up. Excuse me. Sorry. The book of the prophet Micah can be broken up neatly into three distinct sections, which we can call three cycles that the book follows. Uh, they're cycles because the same themes are just recapitulated three times over like we've seen in the book of Revelation with the reinstatement of the same biblical themes occurring over and over again. Really, we you read chapters 1 and 2 of Micah for the rest of the book, you're not going to see anything new, but there is going to be special emphasis in each chapter. But uh, the, the primary themes that we see in the book of the Prophet Micah are twofold. Um, the first primary theme of Micah's lifelong prophetic labors was the threatening of divine judgment. And this was a universal threatening upon the whole world, as we see in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Here he declares judgment against the whole earth. But Micah especially focuses in on the kingdom of Israel, Judah, and Samaria. And these judgments primarily align with God's rejection of the corrupt and incompetent leadership and His rejection of the prominent peoples whose dealing were crooked with one another. There were those in Israel that took advantage of the poor, and oppressed them bitterly and dealt crookedly with one another. These 
Corrupt heads and leaders led the nation into gross idolatry and defiled the temple of God with perverse pagan practices and abominations. Therefore, the prophet of God has a word for them and answers the sins of the people by announcing God's wrathful sentencing upon them. The kingdoms, he says, shall be overthrown. Their cities shall be reduced to rubble. They shall be bereaved of their children. And the Assyrians shall devastate them. Those that remain will be taken as slaves, causing shame, disgrace, and despair to fall upon them. Now this theme of Micah's preaching should have served to shake these people out of themselves and awaken them to their sins, right? The second predominant theme that we see in Micah's ministry is one which is also very predominant in the prophesying of Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, and that is the theme of the coming Messiah and His glorious kingdom. Though the nation be shrouded in darkness and God is soon to visit their iniquities, yet a remnant shall behold the salvation of the Lord and Jehovah's King shall reign in divine strength and supreme majesty. And he shall be to the people safety, security, and peace. This provided such a great hope for the faithful remnant in Micah's generation. Indeed, this message was so full of light and full of hope that it should have quickened the whole nation into a lively hope and new obedience. But neither the judgments nor the promise of the kingdom could humble this obstinate and rebellious generation. They had made themselves deaf to the voice of God. They would not hear it to the point where their wound was incurable. And they must be cut off. Like rotten flesh must be amputated in order to preserve the health of what remains. It had come to that point. So thus we come to our text in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. This is the opening scene of the third cycle of prophecies. And in this passage, the prophet precedes his statements of divine sentencing in this most interesting and powerful way. God orders a court hearing in which he brings a covenant lawsuit against these transgressors. We see God's controversy with his people on account of their base ingratitude and the bad returns that they had given God in return for his favors. So this is a covenant lawsuit based on God holding the people accountable for what they sworn that they would uphold. So we'll look at this passage in two parts. First, uh, the preface or the preamble, which we see verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, the controversy itself. So first then, in examining the preface, we'll carefully note how impossible it is, brothers and sisters, to overstate the gravity of this occasion. Hear what the Lord says. Now, this is to be recognized as one of those terribly solemn moments in which 
Jehovah speaks. The God of Sinai who caused the mountains to quake. The King of kings and Lord of lords who subdues principalities and powers with the word of his mouth. The inexorable emperor of eternity who created the cosmos and all that therein is with the word of his mouth. Oh, hear ye now what the Lord saith. And perhaps to illustrate the the solemnitude and the dread force of God's word, uh, consider an instance in the life of an 18th century minister, uh, the Reverend Reverend Samuel Davies. Uh, This prominent preacher on one occasion was summoned to preach before King George II. Well, during the sermon... The king continued to whisper, and it became an audible whisper to the point where it was becoming a distraction to the preaching. So the great preacher stopped preaching, and he fixed his gaze upon the king of Great Britain. And after a heavy moment, he declared, When the lion roars, the beast of the forest tremble. When Jehovah speaks... The kings of the earth are silent. And the king was humbled tremendously by this severe rebuke. I just imagine the authority of a mere man approaching the king of Great Britain like this. And the king recognizing, you're right, my mouth is shut. The Lord is speaking. This is a weighty, weighty matter. So, again, I say it's impossible to overstate the gravity of this occasion when the Lord comes into controversy with his people and himself shall speak. Uh, The people of Israel were not like King George, I'm afraid to say, but they refused to hear. Although they were proved to be guilty by the ministry of Micah, they, they would not be humbled, but would continue to resist the word of God as it came to them and would reject all admonitions without shame and without discretion. An obstinate people. Then because of their absolute hardness of heart, the prophet is commanded to direct his discourse to the mountains. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. The Lord, uh, let's, let's try to make sense of this. The Lord invites the ancient hills as, as witnesses to the covenant mediated by Moses. For the covenant was announced and ratified upon the mountains. Uh, through the ages, the mountains have stood and observed the interactions between God and His people. And so they would qualify as witnesses to the truthfulness of any accusations brought against God by the people, or vice versa, accusations against the people by God. The mountains would be able to testify to the truthfulness and verity of both sides. But of course, with this interpretation, we are just merely personifying, right? So, that being said, I would suggest another interpretation. So, thus far, the prophet's labor concerning the nation has been virtually fruitless not due to any fault of the prophet we are sure for he poured himself out faithfully 
for the people and for the glory of God. But it had come to a point, like I said, where their wound was incurable. And they must be cut off. So the prophet could have at this point rushed straight into judgment, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, by adding something like, God has so often spoken to you people and has tried by all means to bring you into the right way and unto Himself. But you are past recovery. Only vengeance remains for you now. The Lord is done with you. He's done spending labor in vain. For He finds in you no shame, no meekness, no teachableness whatsoever. And therefore you are repulsive in His sight. The prophet could have said such to them. But instead, the Lord gave him this charge. Arise, plead before the mountains. Get this. This was such a rebuke. And it should have pierced the people right in their hearts. Because it is the Lord purposefully addresses the mountains as if to say that these people exceed in stupidity and spiritual dullness the hills and the mountains, the rocks, which are void of understanding, void of reason. They have no ears to hear, but go preach to them. It's the Lord prefers to summon the hills and the rocks to witness His great cause instead of you. The people are in such an extreme spiritual stupor that it is to be suspected that the rocks and hills would have a more appropriate reaction to the Word of God than they. Yeah, what a woeful condition for a people to be in that God would say, preach to the mountains. Forget these people. They're, they're deaf. There's no helping them. So let the hills hear your voice, O prophet, for this senseless and careless people will not. Let the rocks, let the foundations of the earth that have no ears hear the word of the Lord, since Israel, my people, will not hear. But oh, that they did have an ear to hear. Oh, we wish that they did, for even with such a hard people, the Lord continues to plead, as we'll see in the text, uh, in bringing this indictment, he exposes them as covenant breakers, their hearts set on perdition, all the while heaping condemnation upon themselves without reserve. Yet God proves that all the while he designs their good and desires himself to be a blessing to them if they would but have them. He says, plead before the mountains. And in ver at the end of verse 2, the Lord will contend with Israel. In the, in the King James Version, it is translated that He will plead with Israel. The Lord, we see, is so willing to plead with sinners to come to Himself that He will stop at no means to get them to understand. Okay, secondly, let's, let's move on. Because that was, that was the preamble. That was the, the first section. Now we'll move on to the controversy itself. And first, I want you to see just 
How graciously our God condescends and gives Himself to the people. Verse 3, Oh, my people. Oh, my people. You see, with this kind remark, we see God's recognition of them as being in covenant with Him. They they had a covenant bond with one another. And the Lord was not at a point where He could forsake that. The Lord would remain faithful and true to His covenant people. Though His people would fall short, yet our God never falls short. He is never pushed over the edge to the point where He forsakes His own faithfulness to His Word. See, oh my people. And then, what have I done to you? With this question, he, he, he seems to, to stoop so low. He comes down to their level. Uh, he comes down to their level and, and he offers himself over to them to hear their complaints. God lays Himself bare before them, as it were, exposing Himself to the darts of their criticism and the spearheads of their accusations. That is, that is if any could be made. You know, showing Himself to be willing to approach the people on their plane and indulge into friendly conversation with them to defend His cause. He is the transcendent majesty that inhabits eternity, yet He is willing to come down and deal kindly with us face to face. He is willing to stoop so low as to meet us on our plane, on the human level. He pleads with creatures of clay. What a condescension. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And then... We see a challenge to any and all that ever were in God's service. He says, how have I wearied you? Answer me. Here is a challenge to any and all. To bring any accusation and to testify if they have found in him anything at all that would would cause them to say, he's a hard master. And his demands are unreasonable. He says, now, before the mountains and the enduring foundations as witness, testify against me. The text says, answer me. But I believe um, in the Hebrew it could be translated answer or testify. And I believe with the context of the court case it it would better be rendered testify against me. If you can, testify. This is a challenge of the Lord. He lays Himself open and He says, Open your mouth if you have something against Me. I am willing to defend My cause. He he does not cower and hide Himself when His people have something to bring against Him. But He is a God who is willing to clear Himself if need be. Um... It's a great condescension. We see. Testify against me. 
Oh, the kindness that He goes to show His people. And the great liberty He grants them here so much enhances the guilt of their sin, seeing that they are left utterly speechless. God gives them the opportunity. Now's your chance. Where's your excuses? Where's your reasons? Where's your accusations against me? And the people are left speechless. This so much enhances their guilt and enhances their sin. The kindness the Lord shows to them doubles their guilt. And folks, we see that's what makes our transgression so heinous is that we would sin and transgress a God who is so good. That's what makes our sin so insane is because our God is so good and His ways are pure. So that is the Lord exposing Himself before the people. Then, next uh, in a few lines, the Lord uh, clears Himself and declares His righteousness towards them by rehearsing just a few of His wondrous works which He had performed for their benefit. Verse 4 and 5, beginning with 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. He reminds these people of their condition before the Lord came. They were slaves in Egypt. They were the lowest of the low. And oh, they would have died in Egypt as Pharaoh's slaves had not the Lord in mercy intervened and wrought salvation for them. Bound in chains, they were helpless to help themselves. But God came to bring them up from Egypt. He says, I brought you up from Egypt. You were the lowest sort of people. Poor, despised, and oppressed. But I caused you to ascend. I came and inspired within you an ambition of liberty. I gave you the hope that you could be free from your oppressors. And I animated within you a resolution to shake off your fetters and follow after God. For it was God Himself who came and defied that tyrant Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. They will be mine. And... I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Here he enhances even more his goodness in the Exodus. I redeemed you. I made a claim on you and I paid a premium to have you, my people. You were a reproach among the nations, but to me you are the apple of my eye. I've redeemed you. I gave Pharaoh and his host to the sea for you. What great deliverance can equal that which I have wrought for you? Then, after the exodus, thus they entered upon, they entered into the the wilderness, a barren and howling wilderness. And the Lord did not leave them to themselves as sheep having no shepherd. But He gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam 
I sent before you these three prophets, these competent and gracious leaders were a gift of Christ to His church. And brothers and sisters, we must not forget the mercy of good teachers and good leaders who have led us into truth. These are a great gift of God and a token of His constant care to see to the end of bringing His people all the way into Emmanuel's land. And we can look through beginning at Moses and the prophets and all the way through the generations of the Christian church. How many leaders and and teachers the Lord has given us to guide His church into truth and to protect them from error so that here we stand today with a right understanding of the truth Not because we were so intelligent and enlightened that, oh, wow, we got this comprehended. No, but God paved the way for us before we were even born so that we could find mercy in Christ Jesus, so that we could find salvation in the Lord. This is the grace and mercy of God, and we should never overlook this little phrase, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I left you not to yourself. Moses, the servant of God, was such a selfless servant of the people. He was a minister of civil order and integrity. And he's known throughout the generations as the great lawgiver. For he declared to the people and instructed them in the way of the Lord Jehovah God. He himself was a prophet in Israel. An extraordinary prophet at that. For there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Could the Lord send an angel from heaven to guide His people and outdo that? A man touched with the infirmities of the people, yet who spoke to God face to face. The Lord says, Here, I set this one before you. And brothers and sisters, we have the books of Moses ourselves. So let us thank the Lord for Moses the prophet, a great selfless man who served the people and five, six thousand years later, serving even us today. We thank the Lord for that kindness, for His mercies. Ah. Remember also how that the Lord would have destroyed that nation still for all their provocations wherewith they provoked the wrath of God. Had not Moses stood in the gap and wished himself accursed before God as he interceded for the very people who oftentimes treated him with contempt and scorn? This was the grace of God. This was the grace of God poured into the heart of man that he would stand in the gap and say, God, curse me, but spare this people. If only we had those who would intercede like that today. Oh my, can you imagine the selfless selfless disposition? That's a supernatural grace God gives to a people, competent, selfless leaders. Um, Then there was Aaron, that high priest, by whom the atonement and the work of Christ was prefigured by the sacrifices he made for the people. And Miriam, 
Two, she was a prophetess in her own right. If you recall in Exodus 15, she wrote the song and prophesied, uh, Sing ye to the Lord, for He hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath He thrown into the sea. Now, each of these leaders played a key role in the spiritual development and religious disciplines of the nation. They were very, very key proponents in Israel. What a grace and mercy of God. Kindness of the Lord to give to His people. That said, what follows next is a very brief record of what befell the people in the desert, uh, demonstrating to us that still their ruin would have been sure had not God provided some extraordinary help. For though they were safe from the Egyptians, who did that? <laughs> though they were, um, <laughs> sorry, the light, um, though they were safe from the Egyptians, though they were fed sufficiently with manna from heaven, though water from the rock followed them through the desert, Though the cloud by day protected them from the sun, though the fire by night shone on them and protected them from their enemies and the evil beast of the wilderness, yet all would have been lost. For the people found themselves in great peril when Balaam arose. You know, I think we oftentimes underestimate the what really happened in that passage and how wondrous a work of God that was. For when Balaam arose, he himself was a prophet and as a prophet has the power to call down the power of God through the word of God. So Balaam very well could have cursed the people of God. We're not, this isn't a question of what did God permit. It's a question of his office as a prophet designated him as one who had authority to dispense the cursings and blessing of God as God allowed. So God could have allowed Balaam to curse the people and had he done so, all the streams of God's mercies would have dried up and the torrents of wrath would have been excited against them. He says, oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. This was his evil scheme. The king of Moab arose and said, Look at this people. I know I can't conquer them with my army. But the prophet of God is armed with celestial powers. And he can call down the wrath of God upon this people. I will hire him. And so he does. And Balaam, a crooked man at heart, is sold, in, is sold to iniquity. He's sold under sin. He's willing to curse the people. He's very willing. And God says, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. Ah. But in this instance, God passes over all the provocation of Israel for which they justly deserved cursing and demonstrates extraordinary kindness by his intervention here. Remember what Balak devised against you. 
Balak, as I said, was sold in his heart to work iniquity, and his mouth was open, but the Spirit of God constrained him to defy the king of Moab, even to Balaam's own hurt, for riches and half a kingdom was promised to this man. But God constrained him still to bless the children of Israel in Jehovah's name. See, we see even this heathen prophet was left with no doubt concerning the most blessed state of this people who were called by the name of the Lord. God shows remarkable favor to this undeserving people in this instance by turning their curse into a blessing. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. Afterwards, he adds generally, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Here, uh, God demonstrates that though he was grieved with the people from the time they entered into the wilderness with their ingratitude, their murmurings, their unbelief, and he put up with this all the way to Shittim. Forty years later, for Shittim was the last place the children of Israel encamped before they crossed Jordan into Canaan land. So it's, it's a general statement to see God says, He could say, this is what I put up with. You never ceased to provoke me. Even in Shittim you gave yourself to idolatry. But what we see here is that He dealt so mercifully with the people that he had astonishingly overcome their wickedness by his goodness and glorified himself greatly by leading them through the swelling of Jordan into Canaan, the land of promise, where Joshua, a type of Christ, was raised up and he led the people to conquer and to take possession of their inheritance according to God's fidelity to the promise made to the patriarchs. Brothers and sisters, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. All that the Lord put up with. And yet He remained faithful to the promises He made centuries ago. Our Lord is... He does not waver. He does not blow with the wind. He is a steadfast, resolute, and faithful God. Praise Him for this. So, we come to the last clause here, and it, at length we see that all this is laid before us to the end that we may be convinced of this, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Um. This is to be understood, uh, I mean his righteousness, his righteous acts is to be understood not only as God's uh, uprightness and spectacular moral uh, character. It does mean that, but in the context of covenant, it goes to show forth his kindness, his covenant kindness, along with the faithfulness and the truth which he makes manifest towards his people. That's God's righteousness to his covenant people. So it comes down to this. 
May the history of God's righteous acts prove to you just how faithful He is, just how benevolent He is, just how merciful God has been to your race. Now, I would, I would challenge you, any of you, to bring an accusation against this impeccable Lord. Testify against Him if you can. Bring every excuse that you have for disobedience. Bring every reason that you have for disregarding Him in truth and not worshiping Him as you know you ought to. Bring all your reasons. Bring all your excuses. Tell all before the mountains, before the hills, before the enduring foundations of the earth why you would willfully choose to serve sin and continue to live like this God doesn't have right to rule your heart, your life, and your affections. Seeing that He sent His own Son from heaven to bear the judgment of God against sin in His own impeccable person, in His own immaculate being. Folks, bring everything that you can think of. Bring all that you have. Hold nothing back. I'm begging you. Come against him. Testify against him. Bring all that you have. And at the same time, behold how a wounded Christ pleads for your salvation from the tree of Calvary. This is what I want, want us to see. It's simple and straightforward. We see the Lord pleads with His people. He has a controversy against His people because of their hardness of heart. But there we have no excuse for our sins, brothers and sisters. I just want us to see how good and faithful God is how long-suffering He is, how merciful He is to plead with an obstinate people for so long and to plead with them, not dryly, but to plead with them so dearly, so strongly. His plead is so full of life that it cost Him the life of His Son. So bring your excuses and confess them to God and look to Christ crucified where your sins are answered for once for all and God's righteousness is perfectly commended to you. So may the wounds of Jesus convince you of the controversy which sin begets between God and man. See, there is a controversy begetted. We, we look lightly at sin, but because of the nature of God, our sin demands God's action. May the wounds of Jesus convince us of this. And may His grace grant you to obtain that ultimate peace and reconciliation through the Son. Christians, may this simply be a spur to new obedience. And creating you a stronger resolve to honor the Lord your God with all your life. Seeing how good He is. Seeing how faithful He is. Seeing how merciful and benevolent He has ever been towards you. Seeing that He is so kind 
and full of mercy and who is mighty to save. And he has lavished upon you so much greater benefits than what we have here, according to the exceedingly abundant treasures of grace that are stored for us in Christ Jesus, his son. Finally, uh, if in this moment you find yourself in a dark season, perhaps you're eaten up with anxiety, you've, you've come in here and fear of tomorrow haunts you. Maybe you, have a maybe you have lost a loved one recently. I know some have. Or you have been bereaved of something that you have endeared very much. Or you may be treading water up to your neck in confusion. Or perhaps, as we heard this morning, it's your impiety is simply grieved the Holy Ghost and He's departed from you and you acknowledge the absence of His grace to be so dreadful. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, oh, come to Jesus. For He is a condescending Lord, as we've seen in the text, who will give ear to the petitions of those who will with pure hearts seek His graceful audience. So confess your sins to Him. Open your hearts and pour out to Him and take consolation in the memory of the righteous acts of the Lord. Amen. Let's, let us pray.